I want to welcome you into the Sunday preaching podcast of the Point Church located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. Again, let me say uh, how thankful I am to stand up here week by week and to preach the Bible to you. I appreciate uh, uh, Josh Purser, uh, who preached a couple of Sundays ago. I was able to listen to his sermon a couple of times, and this week I'll be uh, picking it apart and critiquing him. And uh, in particular, in particular, I'm going to pick apart the part where he got up and bragged about preaching a short sermon, yeah, and put, put me under pressure. And so uh, I'm only kidding. Thanks to Josh for preaching. And then last week, Pastor John uh, they just carried right on here in First Timothy uh, in your prayer gathering last week on July the 4th, and I appreciate uh, their leadership and, and just really thankful that we have men in our church who can stand up and deliver the Word of God. That's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, you see a plurality of leaders in the New Testament, and I just believe that's healthy uh, from, uh, from a pastoral standpoint. But I will tell you for my own self that uh, the Bible verse that says absence makes the heart grow fonder, wait, that's not in the Bible, is it? No, uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder is true. I missed you and missed uh, being here, and I'm glad uh, to be again preaching today. So grab your Bible, would you? And I'm gonna let you be seated and turn to 1 Timothy chapter two, all right? 1 Timothy chapter two, uh, we're in the middle of a series entitled Building a Healthy Church. Building a Healthy Church. Now, let me begin today by reminding you of, I believe, the importance of expository preaching, of preaching through the Bible. I must be honest with you, as a pastor, preacher, studier, seminary student, whatever, we all know that there are places in the Bible that are somewhat speed bumps, you know? Uh, we saw two or three of them as we were going through the book of Hebrews. I mean, there's some passages in the Bible that are much easier to preach uh, than others. And so in this particular section today, it is a, a, a difficult text. So I've asked Jim Newton if he would come up here and preach. I spoke to somebody in your class today, and so that uh, I heard that you mentioned the sermon, and so I said, I'm going to throw a zinger to Jim today. Jim is so thankful that he doesn't have to preach this text. But as you preach through the Bible, you're going to land in some spots where, you know, you're not right, really quite sure about everything in the text. Uh, you're going to read some texts where there is a variety of opinions, and uh, certainly the text for us today is one of those texts. As a matter of fact, uh, as we were on vacation a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were fishing. We love to, to go bass fishing. It's always something we do. We go to the lake. And one afternoon, I was out with my brother-in-law, and uh, we were bass fishing, plastic worm, talking and so forth. And he pointed kind of over to the shoreline, and he said, man, I found a really good brim bed right over there. He said, I'm talking the prime spot. And he said, so I'm going to bring some of the kids out here, and we're going to fish in that brim bed. And so the next day, sure enough, my wife 
uh, sitting right over here, and her brother, uh, they get into the boat with four small children. Get the picture, good brim bed, four small children. So they arrive at the place, and if you can get the picture in your head, uh, just a, a kind of a narrow area where this brim bed is, and up here there's an oak tree limb hanging down, and over here there's an oak tree limb hanging down. And as you can imagine, the first two casts went where? They went up in the oak tree, right? And then from that moment on, their testimony, would you like a microphone to testify today? Okay. When Misty got back, she was so frazzled. Her hair was all over the place, and uh, her nerves were shot. And they began to describe all the events of this fishing trip. Imagine four small kids with Zebco 33s, corks, and crickets, and there's, there's hooks up in the tree, and then there's lines all connected together, and someone would catch a fish, and it would run over across two or three other lines, and it was just mass chaos. And so this, this perfect spot, this good brim bed, turned into a fiasco. I use that little illustration for you today to say that 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15 is a really good text. You know why I can say that? I can say that because it's in God's word. It's a word from God. So it's a good, good place. It's a great place to land. It's a great place to learn. It's a great place to grow. But yet what we have is we have a lot of lines getting thrown into the brim bed. And we have a lot of tangling up that goes on. We have a lot of lines of opinion and a lot of lines of feelings and a lot of lines of, well, this is the day and age in which we live in the culture. And so we do get kind of tangled up in this text, but, but, but I want to be very clear, and I know that most of you agree with me today, that what we really want to do is we, we just want to say, what has God said, and then how does it apply to us today? In building a healthy church, our God is a God of order. Our God is a God of order. We see it in the very first chapter of the Bible. At the time of creation, creation is so orderly. God told the sun, you go here, and the moon, you go here, and the stars, you go here, and water, I'm going to put you here, but I'm only going to let you come so far. Land, you're going to start here. And you just see over and over and over God's divine order in creation. Paul said to the church at Corinth, because our God is a God of order, let us in the church do all things decently and in order. I love what Dr. Brian Chapel, pastor, said. He said, if we do not invite the biblical text to define church order, the intrusive culture will. The spirit of the age is a tyrant to be resisted, not embraced. I love that last sentence. The spirit of our age, the world we live in today, is that there is a tyrant to be resisted, not embraced. Who is the tyrant? The world that you and I live in today, they view God as the tyrant to be resisted, as opposed to the one who is in authority, our creator, who we are responsible to. There's way too much today 
of our culture and people in our culture telling God, no, God, we're going to do it our way. But yet God, in his word, is clearly a God of order. Let's look at the text, shall we? Let's jump in it. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 8. I'm going to read it, and if you've not read it yet, you're going to understand why there's a great big hand grenade in this text, all right? Here we go. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she, the woman or women, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the desire and the hunger that uh, is in this room now to, to hear the word and then to apply it to our lives. And God, as, as I preach through this text and all the things that I've studied and uh, discovered and things that you brought to my attention, Lord, I pray that I would handle this text in a way that would be honoring to you and it would be edifying to the church. Lord, make us stronger as Christians and as a church because we've studied this text today. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. I remind you that the purpose of 1 Timothy is found in chapter 3 and verse number 15. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I want to come to Ephesus. I want to visit with you. I want to speak to the church, but if I'm delayed and I'm not able to come, I'm writing to you this letter so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Paul is saying, I want Christians who are a part of the body of Christ, the local New Testament church, to first of all know how you're supposed to act when the church comes together. This is proper behavior. And then secondly, when we gather together, may the church at Ephesus always be a pillar, a buttress, or an anchor for truth. Can you see just in that verse how blessed you and I are today that I'm standing here with a Bible in my hand, that I have something to teach you from, right? That they did not have the complete canon of Scripture, and, and they were going off of the apostles' teaching and the formation and the foundation of the church. And Paul is just saying, look, when you gather together, there's got to be the right order. There needs to be the right behavior. There needs to be the right approach. And the church needs to always be anchored in truth. Now, as we come to this particular section, I only have two points for my sermon today, all right? Two things I want to point out for you in the text. Here it is. Ready? Number one, we all 
we all gather seeking God. We all come to this place gathering corporately with a spirit of seeking God. Paul says, I would, I desire that men everywhere in every place that they would gather and they would pray lifting up holy hands. Now, here's what we know about Timothy. Timothy did not stand up in a building like this and preach to the church at Ephesus. There was no First Baptist Church of Ephesus, okay? Rather, the church was gathered in small pockets in house churches, if you will. And so Timothy was kind of the bishop of Ephesus. He was, he was overseeing all of the expressions of the gathering of the body of Christ. And, and Paul says, Timothy, look, there, there needs to be an emphasis placed on that gathering that, number one, the men should step forward and they should lead prayer meetings. That prayer should be the priority. Prayer must be a priority in the local church. Oh, hear me today. Prayer is not just a filler in the service. Prayer is not just something that we use for transitions on the stage. Prayer is our hearts seeking God. That when we gather together, we have a purpose for that gathering. And I would just admonish all of us week by week as we go through the cares of life, the struggles of life, the, the situations, our work week, and, and everything that we have going on, that when we, we get up on Sunday morning and we begin to come to the local uh, gathering of the church, that in our minds we know why we're going. We're going for fellowship. We're going for singing and prayer. But most of all, we are going seeking God. And Paul adds to that, that as men would pray, we would lift up holy hands. Now, he most certainly is not saying that the proper prayer posture would only be if you have your hands up. That's, uh, the Bible's the best commentary on the Bible. We see in other places in the scripture where he says, uh, go into the prayer closet, right, and pray in private. What he's saying there is that when the church comes together, the church lifts up holy hands as an expression to God, God, we're down here in this messed up, mixed up, crazy world. We need you down here. Anybody feel that way today? Some, a couple of you do. Anybody feel that way today? Oh, God, God, here we are, and we need your help. And, and sometimes it's easy for us to fall in the trap of thinking, man, it's worse today than it's ever been. Friends, it's always been bad. It's always been tough. The city of Ephesus was a town of wealth. It was a town of, of sexual promiscuity. It was very hedonistic. Uh, there was a, a very worldly, ungodly culture in Ephesus. There were, there were a lot of wealthy people in Ephesus. And no doubt when you have means or you have finances, and, and to be honest with you, all of us are blessed, okay? When we look around the world, we are very blessed today, right? And when you're blessed and you, and you basically have what you need, isn't it easy to fall into a trap of feeling like we are self-motivated or, or we can handle this or, or we're doing okay? It's easy to fall into a trap of feeling like I can handle this instead of saying, oh God, every day 
I can't handle this. I'm dependent on you. Timothy, get the church together and lift up holy hands. Express to God how much you need him. Church, hear me today. When, when, when we gather on Sunday, when we gather on Sunday, it's not for you to sit there and be a spectator for what's going on on the stage. We come together in a spirit of unity, in a spirit of fellowship, in a spirit of love, saying, oh God, we need you. We need your help. The first thing we need to do is come to this moment with our hearts right. If your heart's not right, get it right. Don't keep living the way you're living because the church comes together and we come together seeking God. But yet when we come together, he says at the end of verse eight, he points out, interestingly, two particular things that, that is a hindrance to the public gathering. Number one, he says, lift up holy hands, Psalm 24, who will ascend to the hill of the Lord? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. How many of you know that God's not impressed with dirty hands? He's not impressed. Look, you, you can't live you can't live an immoral, godless life on Saturday night and then lift up hands to him on Sunday in the concert. Amen, pastor. God wants clean hands and a pure heart. I didn't say perfection. He's our perfection. I'm saying that we come before him and, and, and we're seeking him. We're going, God, God, I need you. God, I need your help in my life. And Paul says, don't come and do that if you're, Dealing with anger and you're quarreling amongst yourself. Isn't that interesting that he points out anger? Anger. Can I ask you a personal question today? What are you angry about? Because some of you are angry. You know, who's he talking to? I don't know who I'm talking to, but I know how life is. I know how life is. What are you angry about? I, I watched yesterday in the funeral some of some of the people that spoke, they're, they're, they're righteously indignant over what happened. Things happen, right, in life. That anger can turn to bitterness, and that bitterness can control us. Maybe, maybe, maybe I need to ask somebody today, why are you so angry? <laughs> why is it that everything sets you off? Why is it that you get ticked off so easily? Why is it maybe, I don't know anybody like this in the room right now, but let me go ahead and say it. Why is it that you get so ticked off at your brothers and sisters in Christ so much? Why are you so angry? I had a Wednesday night, I had a, some friends of ours had a 43rd uh, wedding anniversary celebration. They live on the other side of town. They don't go to our church. So I went to that uh, by myself and I got there a little early. And so I ran in this burrito shop, um, how many of you know we're going to have burritos and tacos when we get to heaven? Can I get a witness right there? I got a witness right there. There was a guy behind the counter, it was just me and him, only two people in the restaurant. And he had a necklace on, he had a cross on his, on his necklace. And I said, man, I like your cross there. I, that's, I really like that. And I said, you're a Christian. He said, yes, sir, I am. And I said, man, that's awesome. He began to tell me his story. He moved here from Miami and I had some family here, and so he's here working and so forth, and I just asked him if he had found a church to go to or whatever, and he had not found one yet, and I said, man, you need to get in church and be faithful, and he said, he said, man, that's the truth. He says, I'm gonna tell you, he said, this world's crazy right now, and I said, man, I, I agree with you, but I want you to tell me why you think the world is crazy, 
And he said, man, all, all the stuff going on, all the meanness and the shooting and the, and the hatred and everything, everybody's so mad. I said, man, I'm glad you said that. Can you help me out? I said, I'm a pastor of a church, and I'm looking around today. Why is everybody so mad? He said, ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? How many of you believe that Christian people are not supposed to be angry people? Oh, boy, that was a lame Amen. Would you please just one more time look on the screen for just a minute, James chapter 1 and verse number 20. While all this stuff is going on out there and so forth and so on, and you want to have, we're going to get in just a minute to opinions and talking and all this, but just stop for just a minute. Can I remind you what the inspired word of God says? That your anger does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I don't know who I'm speaking to today, but I know the Holy Spirit's speaking to somebody just like he did to me several years ago when God said to me, Tim, you've got to deal with your anger. Why are you angry? God worked in my heart and showed me I had anger. You don't come to church to praise and worship and pray with anger in your heart. You've got to repent. You don't come to church to quarrel. The last word of verse number eight, quarrel. I love this. I love it. You know what that word means? It means to tell or to say something. Anybody in the room that can kind of, we can get the vibe going here and connect, that the older I get, 49 yesterday, by the way, one year from the big 50, the older I get, I'm realizing that I don't have to have something to say about everything. I don't have to have something to say about everything, i.e. Facebook and Twitter. I mean, that's the place where people can just go and just say it, and I don't know, maybe sometimes we think that other people care or that it's important, but it's just a place where we can say it. The church, the local church becomes the place where people come and, and we quarrel. I, I talked to a pastor on the phone in another state this week for, for a good period of time, probably 40 minutes. Pastor's a good-sized church, and he just shared with me that over the last year, he said, we've, our church has lost about 150 to 200 people from our fellowship for a variety of reasons, not all of which, but some of which is opinions, mask or no mask, and you know where I'm going with that, right, politics, right on down the line. So we just get mad, we say it. And we quarrel, we quarrel, and we take our anger. People leave and go to other churches with their anger and their bitterness. And we've got friction and quarreling in the body of Christ, while at the same time, we need God to move in a supernatural way. What should we be doing? Not seeking how we disagree, but we should be seeking God. So Paul addresses the attitude first. Stop being angry, stop quarreling, but then he transitions into not only attitude, but he transitions into attire. And ladies, he addresses the context, the culture of the moment in Ephesus among the ladies by saying, likewise, now that word likewise is important, you ought to circle it in your Bible, because the theme here is the attitude of the heart and the approach, okay? He's saying, likewise, just like the men lift up holy hands without anger and quarreling, in the same manner, attitude of the heart, the proper focus, ladies, Adorn yourselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, 
not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. You know what he says? Not only do we need to make prayer a priority, but we've got to minimize distractions, okay? The distractions of anger, the distractions of quarreling, and then to minimize the distraction of making what we wear to the corporate gathering more important than it should be. He specifically says this matter of braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire. Now, ladies, I got good news for you today. If you braided your hair or you're wearing gold or pearls or you've got a nice outfit on, we're not going to have you come to the altar today, okay? Are y'all relieved? He, he, he's not, hear me, I, I'm, not, I'm not speaking into the text to, to, to twist what Paul is saying. We are literalists. We believe the Bible literally. But what Paul is saying here is that the church, the gathering of the church in some places has turned into a fashion show. It was a matter of affluence, a matter of affluence, that there were some ladies who had money. They were wealthy. And the, the public gathering of the church, maybe they were in a social mindset, uh, you know, and the church just became another one of those social outlets for them. Uh, they would show up with very costly dresses on with this uh, arrayment that was, uh, quite frankly, gaudy and brought attention to themselves. There's a second aspect of this that I believe is, is very clear. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus was, Artemis was the female god who was the god of life or the god of fertility, and all of the priests in the temple of Artemis were females. And out of that was prostitutions. Prostitution would take place as ladies would come into the streets at night and they would be dressed in a very gaudy, flashy manner to bring attention to themselves. So I believe there is a dual, uh, there's a dual message here in this verse. Number one, don't come to church to, to bring attention to yourself because of your money and don't come looking like people who bring attention to themselves for sexual pleasure. That's the message here. I want to say something that I know some of you may disagree with me on this, and if you do, that's okay. I promise you, I'm not offended. I'm right and you're wrong. There's, there's a message here that I think we find in James as well. James said this, don't go to church and take somebody that's got money and affluence and they look really super rich and nice and say to them, hey, you come sit here on the front in this really nice seat. We are so glad to have you, and we hope you'll give in the offering today. While you tell another person that's poor and looks ratty and, and doesn't have a whole lot, and their clothes are torn and tattered, and maybe they haven't had a bath in a few days, you say to that person, hey, you go stand back there in that corner. You kind of stay out of the way. You don't, you don't deserve a position of affluence. James said, how dare. You ought to be ashamed of yourself acting that way at church. Now, hear me for just a minute. I grew up in church. All my life I've been in church. I'm going to tell you what I heard. When you come to church, you ought to wear your best. You ought to look your best. I think this text has a problem with that. I really do. I mean, most of my life growing up, 
We always wore a suit and tie. I mean, every Sunday. It's my mama's fault. She's sitting right over here. <laughs> Wear your best. Look your best. Dress up. I've told the story here. I've told the story in this church. It's been a while, but I'm going to tell it again. One of my neighbors in Lillian came to this church. I went down there and invited him to this church. He was 71 years old. He told me he had not been to a church since he was 13 years old. He walked up on the steps of the church one Sunday. He had on blue jeans and a flannel shirt. And he said, one of the deacons who was a crooked businessman in town was standing at the door, looked at him and told him that he needed to go back home until he found some nicer clothes to wear to the house of God. That fires me up. Right now I'm in that be angry and sin not. I'm in that verse. God help us. I want you to hear me for just a minute. If you want to wear a suit and tie every day of the week into church, God bless you. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. But I'm going to tell you something. You can have on a suit and tie and have a filthy, cruddy, godless heart. You can be just like Jesus said to the Pharisees. You're like a sepulcher that's been whitewashed and painted up, and it looks beautiful on the outside, but on the inside it is filled with dead men's bones. What is the principle here? The principle here is modesty, that which is orderly, that which is properly. You know, you wouldn't think it was proper if I came up here today in my bathing suit, right? I mean, you, you'd just be thinking, no, wait, hold on a minute. You know, the pastor, certainly not going to wear Speedos or a tank top or anything like that, all right? You're just, there's just something that's proper. And I want you to circle that word proper there in your Bible, okay? And I, I did a word study on it, and here's what it means. It means its own day. It's one day. How many of you know what it means when somebody says, I've had a Monday? I've had a Monday. We know what that means, right? It's unique. There's only one Monday. There's only one first day of the week, or there's only one Monday in the work week, right? And so that's the picture here. It's saying it's just, it's just fitting. It's proper. It has its own identity. What is that identity? We come to worship God in humility, in shamefacedness. God help us that church would ever be a fashion show or, or that we would come to be looked at. No, we come to gaze at Calvary, not gaze at each other. Amen. So let's, let's lay this. In church order, in church order, we come together and we are all seeking God. Now, number two, when we seek God, it clarifies our purpose. It clarifies our role and our purpose. Now, I want you to hear me for just a minute. We are in, we are in a cultural war, okay? It is a cultural war right now over identity, over who we are, over who a human being is. And I know I'm speaking to a room this morning primarily of people that have somewhat of a biblical world. You don't have everything figured out, neither do I, but we open up our Bible and we see the divine order of God. We open up Genesis chapter one and we start reading down through there and we come to verse number 27. Look on the screen. The scripture says, so God created man in his own image. We call that the imago Dei, the image of God. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female 
he created them. God defines and sets the boundaries for the sexes. There's only two sexes, male and female. There's only two genders. Whatever word you want to plug in there, there's two genders, male and female, a man and a woman. God set it up that way. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 in the New Testament, Paul said this, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that verse is an important verse because it is in the context, Galatians 3, of the law, justification, and salvation. And so Paul is basically saying when you come to the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There's no difference. There's no difference between a Jewish person or a Greek person. We're all sinners. And may I just remind you again, there's no difference in ethnicity, red, yellow, black, and white. We all come and kneel at the foot of the cross. There's no difference. We all need a Savior. There's no difference between a slave or a free. There's no difference between a male or a female because we are all one in Christ Jesus. Please give me your best ears for just a minute. In God's creative order, men and women are uniquely created with a role to bring God glory. We are equal in dignity and we are equal in worth. Now, historically, there has been what history refers to as patriarchal society. And because of that patriarchal society, and in many cases, the abuse of that role, there is a negative feeling in the verses that I'm about to read to you. There's this overwhelming, like, oh, like, like fingers on a chalkboard. N.T. Wright put it this way. There has been a, a kind of war going on in the Western culture, at least for the last generation. It's been dubbed the war of the sexes. It was not so much a battle between men and women as between different versions of what the roles of the two sexes should be in society, in marriage, and in the church. Life becomes confusing at this point. There's some men who are very much in favor of women's liberation, while there are some women who are very much opposed to women's liberation. Passions run high. And those who grow up while it's all going on will discover soon enough that there are various parts of the traditional culture which are like unexploded bombs. You pick them up and they'll go off in your hand. Such is the subject that we're talking about today the role of men and women. The friction becomes when we cannot accept and embrace and understand that we have equal dignity and we have equal worth and that there is not a role that's more important than another, but that we are uniquely crafted for a specific role. I am 100% sure, I have no doubt and I am confident that at no point in my life will I be a mother. Ain't gonna happen. As much as I might want to be a mother, it's not gonna happen. 
You know why? Because God created me to be a male. And so there's this uniqueness there, right? Uniqueness in the roles. Now, we got to real quickly get into verse 11 through 15 and talk about bringing this into the order of the local church. And this is, as Wright said, this is a set of verses where there's a hand grenade, okay? And so God called me to pastor and preach this text, so I've got the hand grenade in my hand. And some of you may disagree with me over the next few minutes, and that's okay, but I'm gonna preach the text as I believe God intended for it to be, all right? Roles and purposes. There's two primary observations of this particular section. I'm gonna give them to you real quick. This is, this is preacher talk, all right? The first one is what we call complementarian, that we all have a role, male and female, we all have a role, and if we stay in our lane and fulfill those roles, those roles just, they're not competing against each other, they're complementing one another, all right? It's like in the marriage relationship, husband and wife, right? Uh, that, that's another thing I know will never happen in my life. I'll never be a wife, right? I'm a husband. I'm a man. And so Misty and I are married together, and our roles as God defined it in the Scriptures, we complement one another. We're not at war with one another. We're not pulling against or fighting against each other. We, we're not jockeying for a position. We are trying to fulfill those roles that God has for us, and those roles are roles of mutual submission, mutual submission to one another, and those roles complement one another. So in the local church, I would tell you that this church is a complementarian church. The Southern Baptist Convention is complementarian. In the Baptist faith and message, it very clearly says that there are roles for men and women. We call that complementary. They complement one another. There's another view of the text in different scriptures in the New Testament that lands on a position we call egalitarian, okay, egalitarian. And the egalitarian takes passages like this, and just hear me for a minute, takes passages like this, and I personally believe comes up with a variety of hermeneutics and possibilities as to why in 2021, there is no way that Paul could have meant what he wrote. Some would also say, well, I know what Paul said, but look at verse number eight. Paul said, I desire. And then in verse number 12, he said, I do not permit. So therefore, Paul is just simply giving his opinion about the moment and speaking into this particular church at this particular moment. Another statement I need to make is that as we come to a text like this, we have opinions, we have feelings. The best place to go when you have a text that is somewhat murky and a little bit, you know, I'm trying to figure it out, the best place to go to get clarity is the same Bible in which you're reading. Okay, did y'all get what I just said? I, I, I think I might have confused myself. The best place to go is what does the Bible, what, what do other passages have to say about this passage, all right? So, so watch me, you and I, well, at least I do, I believe in the inspiration and the authority of the scriptures. Therefore, I believe that the Bible is sufficient, it's relevant, and it's accurate for 2021 
just like it was in 1900, 1800, and 1700, the Bible is inspired and sufficient for today, all right? So watch. So we approach this text as complementary. Now, what does this text say? Here we go. First of all, it says in verse number 11, ladies, we need to rejoice at what Paul says here. He says, let a woman learn quietly with submissiveness. The first thing we need to celebrate is Paul telling the church to let the women learn. You know why? Because in this culture, women were oppressed. Women were not afforded the educational opportunities of other men in this patriarchal society that obviously was abused and got off the rails from the way that God intended it for it to be. And so Paul is saying to the church, ladies, come up to the table, come up to the buffet of the word of God and feast and grow and learn, be discipled. You are valuable in the kingdom of God. And we know that women are valuable in the kingdom because it was modeled by our Lord in his earthly ministry. Luke chapter eight, there's a list of name of women who were in his group that were going about doing the ministry in the kingdom. And so the text here says, let's celebrate that women can learn. But notice that he says, let's do it quietly with submissiveness. I want you to circle the word quietly there in verse number 11 and then circle it again at the end of verse number 12. Now, ladies, hear me. I do not for one second believe that Paul was saying, tell the ladies in the church when they get to church to hit the mute button. Don't say a word. Keep your mouth shut. That's not what Paul is saying here. I want to point out that the word quietly in verse number 11 is translated in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 12, I believe it is. Uh, no, I'm sorry. In, uh, in another place in 1 Timothy, the same Greek word is translated peaceable. Peaceable, okay? It also is translated well-ordered, okay? Let, let a woman come in and learn in a peaceable manner, well-ordered with submissiveness. Now, obviously, there is the word submit there. Now, doesn't that word give our culture today heartburn? Maybe, I don't know, some of you in the room. But you have to understand what the word submit means. It just, mean, just means order of rank. It, it's just like in the military. You guys and girls totally get it. There are some upper-level men and women in the military that only look as good as they do because of the people that are under them that are more talented, smarter, better read, and maybe better equipped than their job. Ladies, please hear me today. We've, we've got a real problem in the church, literally across the world. We've got a real problem in the church today because thank you, ladies, in some places, it's only the ladies who will step forward and lead. It's the ladies who love God more than their husband, who read the scriptures more than their husband, who read Christian books more than their husband, who are trying to seek God more than their husband. Read the stats. Do research on me. Fact check me. I dare you. There are people in this church that fact check me. Do, do your research. Do your research. Ladies show better fruit in the local church than men do. It's just the truth, man. It's time for us to step up and be leaders. God said that Ladies, you learn with submissiveness. Now watch, watch. 
We'll see it in just a minute. The framework of the church, elders, pastors, leaders of the church are to be men, are to be men. If I were to take and skip over 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, and I went right to chapter 3 and verse number 1, next week we're going to get into the qualifications of the pastor. One of the qualifications of the pastor, bishop, overseer is that he is the husband of one wife, okay? So there you see the male role, okay? The male role in leadership. Now here's what I want to point out about the word submissiveness. Ladies, please hear me. It's real easy to run to the submit to the man, submit to the man. The submissiveness here is not submit to all men. And let me make another statement. Let me make another statement. We get it wrong when we think all men can pastor and all women can't. The truth is all men can't pastor because there are qualifications There's an order that God has for those that stand in a position of authority and leadership and pastor, and all men are not qualified for that position, okay? The submissiveness at the end of verse number 11, hear me, I believe points more toward submissiveness to the word of God and what God has said, okay? It's not about, you do what we tell you to do. No, it's about, this is what God has said, let's do it together, Let's serve the Lord together. And then he goes on in verse number 12, and and he gets very specific where he says, I do not permit. That word permit there is, it's not possible. You should not change this. This is not the way it should be in the local meeting of the church, the corporate gathering of the church. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain peaceable. She's to remain well-ordered and to understand that God intends for a man to pastor and to lead in the church. We are a complementarian church, and we believe that God here gives two very clear admonitions that a lady should not teach, a lady should not exercise authority over men in the pastoral role in the local church. Now, there's one other thing I want to point out about the historical context of the quietness in the church. You've got to bring in the false teachers, the division, the quarreling, the disagreements, And I want to give you one quick picture that I found this week in studying a literary document from the year 50 that is called the Ephesiaca by Xenophon of Ephesus. He was writing about the things that were going on at the temple of Artemis, and he said that every day there was loud incantations of the female priest who went into the temple and they were reciting over and over and over again these incantations to the God of Artemis. And no doubt, some of those women had been converted to Christianity, and Paul is just trying to get them to see the order of coming to church reverently and learning what God is saying to the church. That's something you can study more on your own. Notice a very important verse in verse number 13. It says that it's this way because of God's order in Genesis that God created Adam first 
And then from Adam, he created Eve from a rib from his side. Isn't that what it says? It says that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. And we know that, that Eve took the fruit and invited Adam into the situation. But in God's divine order, we do not talk about having the sin nature of Eve. <laughs> we talk about have, having the Adamic sin nature, the sin nature of Adam. You know why? Because it's God's order that Adam should have said, no, we're not going to take of that fruit because God had placed him to lead his family to follow God. Let me finish up in verse 15, all right? This is another one of those humdinger verses that, that, man, there's a whole lot of opinions about it. What in the world? Would anybody like to stand up and tell us what this verse means? Go ahead, Jim Newton. I already called on you once. Jim, aren't you glad you didn't have to do this? Yeah. Here we go. Look at this verse. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, if we believe that all Scripture is profitable, we need to just pause for just a minute and think, what in the world is he talking about here? Paul is obviously not saying that women get saved or become a Christian if they'll have a child, okay? That's a simple kind of obvious answer. Uh, he, he's not saying that Christian women will be delivered and never go through death while delivering a child. Now, now we know that childbearing really points back to Genesis chapter 3 at the time of the fall and the curse upon man and upon creation, that the curse upon women is that there would be pain and suffering in childbearing. And all the mothers said amen right there. Would you pause for just a minute with me, though? Would you pause for just a minute? And I want you to think about all these centuries that have passed. And I want you to think about all the Christian ladies um, that have not had the medical technology and the helps that we have today. If you go back through the centuries and think about all the Christian ladies that just had to suffer without anesthesia and other things that maybe are available today. Think about the ones that, that had some serious health issues that stuck with them through life. Think about the ladies that actually died giving childbirth because they couldn't get the kind of help and the attention. Can you not see how this has been a curse upon creation and humanity? Can you see the pain in that? Can you? Paul is saying here, that this, this childbirth thing is a, is a difficult thing. And again, he wrote this 2,000 years ago, but, but he's saying that through that, through that childbearing, she will be saved. And I want to point out for you that he does not say she will be saved by childbearing. He only says she will be saved through childbearing. Now, now that phrase has caused some people to write through the years that Paul is saying here, that through childbearing, ultimately the Messiah would be born and bring salvation to the world. I don't agree with that, and I think most, most scholars don't either. So what does it mean? It means that even in that curse, even in that pain, the pain of childbearing, ladies hear this, that is not the final word that God has spoken over your life. That curse... <laughs> is not the final word that God has spoken about your life. 
Let me give you an illustration of one other place that Paul uses this phrase. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, where he says about a man going through the fire, going through difficulties, going through struggles. He says he will be saved by only as through fire. Through fire, through childbearing. And it's pointing forward to the end of the story. Church, what is the end of the story? What is the end of the story? The fruit of salvation. He finishes up verse 15 by saying, if they continue, if they continue in faith and love and understanding, knowing that God is working his purposes in our life, what God calls all of us to do is to embrace those purposes to embrace those roles and not get out of our lane, but to fulfill the role that God has for us. So let me finish my sermon today by saying, are you embracing the role, men, that God has for you in your life, in your family, and in the local church? Oh, hear me, hear me. It is not God's plan for you to be a spectator in the kingdom. It's God's plan for you to be a part of the kingdom to be engaged in the kingdom. I would say that maybe, maybe in this room, there's a man that God is touching your heart and, and, he's, and he's putting his finger on your life and he's saying, I, I want you to be a pastor. I want you to preach the word. If you're here today like that, I would say to you, say yes to Jesus. Say yes to the will of God. Allow him to use you for his glory to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ladies, just because we do not believe that you assume the role of pastor-preacher at the church, it does not mean that God has not placed his hand upon your life to be a teacher of the Word of God, to be a discipler of the Word of God, to fulfill a role. Listen, there are so many ladies that are so much more learned and smarter and have greater understanding than I'll ever have in my life, and what a gift they are to the kingdom. Ladies, you are a gift. You have a role. God just sent me here today to not say, you can't do this. God sent me here today to say, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are a gift to the kingdom. You are a gift to the church. Find that role that God has for you and fulfill it. And watch, if that role is not you being a Bible teacher, or a position of the church, that role is you discipling your children. You are in as great a role as a pastor. That's the problem we have today is our perspective on things. You are beautiful for that. I can't do it, but you can. So let God bless you and affirm you and use you today for his glory. And let's make sure that we stay in the framework of what a role for a man and a woman is so that our church can be healthy. Last thing and I'm done. Last thing and I'm done. Do you know who the Bible gives credit to for discipling the pastor of the church at Ephesus? Not Paul. Not Paul. You know who gets the credit? His mother and his grandmother. His mother and his grandmother, through Jesus, raised up a little pastor. 
So come on, ladies, we need more pastors. We do, we do, we do, oh, we do. Let's disciple our families and disciple our kids so that the Point Church will be a healthy place that brings honor and glory to the Lord. All God's people said, let's pray together.